teasing. Take your Bibles and turn to the book of John chapter 15 with me tonight. Pastor Elstock's message, neither he nor I knew what the other was going to preach about tonight, but our messages are going to dovetail one into the other, and I'm grateful for that. I love when the Holy Spirit does that, aren't you? Don't you? Aren't you grateful for that? I, I always tell Pastor Wendell, my prayer for him is, and our other pastors on our staff is that the Holy Spirit of God will lead them and no one else can touch them. Do you know what I mean when I say that? I don't want a college influencing our pastors. I don't want other pastors influencing our pastor. I want the Holy Spirit of God to touch their heart and them to preach what God touches their heart with. And I, by the way, I pray that for myself. I consider this a very sacred place up here. This is not a place to, uh, to get in a human involvement in. This is a place for God to do his work. And so I've prayed the Holy Spirit would take me, fill me, and use me. And, and this morning, as Pastor Elstock preached, uh, his message really fits what God had already touched my heart to preach tonight. And so I'm really excited. I get excited when God does those kind of things. I remember when I was pastoring, we had four, two young couples that, were, that headed up our music at our church. And they came to me when we first arrived at the church and they said, would you please give us your sermon title or your sermons for the next six months so we can pick the music to match? And I said, no, I will not. And they looked at me and I said, I'm gonna pray the Holy Spirit leads me and I want you to pray the same thing because I believe God can even lead music people. I was supposed to get a little laugh right there, but it didn't work very well. I believe God can move any of us, am, am I right? And so I said, I want you to pray for the Spirit to lead you as much as I'm praying for him to lead me. And you know, they came to me about two months later and they said, man, it's so exciting because we see exactly what you're saying take place. God has moved the music to match the messages. By the way, God's big enough to do all that. And so tonight I want to share a simple message with you. And I, I want to talk with you tonight about fruit. And uh, Pastor Elstock mentioned it this morning. He talked about fruit. And I, I think about the characteristics of fruit. Uh, some of the things that I put down is fruit is sweet. Uh, it's typically good for your health. Unless you're diabetic, then you have to be a little bit careful. Uh, it typically grows in warm climates. And God tells us that he wants us as believers to produce fruit. And so tonight I want to talk to you about fruit, more fruit, and much fruit. Let's pray. Father, would you guide our hearts tonight? We've, I've talked about it here, but God, I want to in invite you to please take over tonight. Thank you for the, the good old hymns we sang tonight. Oh, what a, what a day it's going to be when we meet you face to face there in heaven. We yearn for that day. And God, we're jealous of some who've already gone before us and are there with you. And God, we look forward to the day we'll join you there. But on the way between here and there, God, we'd like to please you as much as possible. And we know that you desire for us in our Christian lives to produce fruit. That fruit ought to be sweet. Uh, that fruit ought to... Uh, grow in a warm environment. We should, we should create times in our lives that, that are, are good for fruit. And God, we should leave some seeds behind from that fruit. And we pray that you'd help us tonight as we look at this topic of fruit, that you will give us the grace to be able to see in your word things that we've seen before but not really seen as clearly as we will tonight. I pray for your spirit to move in my heart and the hearts of these folks who come tonight. Thank you for each one. And uh, Father, I pray that you would uh, be with our pastor and Jody, give them safety, Lord, give them a sweet time of fellowship, give them a good time of rest and recuperation, 
And Father, bring them back uh, with hearts that are stirred and ready to go back in the saddle, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I want you to look with me at those three things. We're going to start with the, the fruit. Look in John chapter 15 with me. It says, Jesus says there, I am the true vine, and my Father is the husbandman. Every branch, verse 2, in me that beareth not fruit, he taketh away. And every branch that beareth fruit, he purgeth it, that it may bring forth more fruit. Drop down to verse 4 with me, if you would. He says, Abide in me, and I in you. As a branch cannot bear fruit of itself, except it abide in the vine, no more can ye, except ye abide in me. You know, the Bible talks about the fruit that God wants to produce in us. And I believe Brother Schneider did a series on Wednesday nights on the fruit of the Spirit. Brother Rick, where are, there you are. Didn't you just recently do a... The Holy Spirit. Okay, sorry about that. The gifts... Anyway, all right, I was off on that one. But you know the gifts of the... Or the uh, fruit of the Spirit in Galatians chapter 5. You know that list, right? Uh, the, the Bible says that the this Holy Spirit will produce in us. I think I heard you preach a message on that one anyway. Hopefully I'm right. I probably am wrong. But uh, he produces love and joy and peace and long-suffering and gentleness and goodness and faith and meekness and temperance or self-control. That is the fruit of the Spirit. By the way, that's a singular word. It's not, it's not plural. Those are things that if you're being controlled by the Spirit of God, those things will be evident in your life. But they're not the only things in Scripture. Romans chapter 6 in verse 22 says that God wants to produce in us the fruit of holiness and everlasting life. In uh, Ephesians chapter 5 verse 9, he says he wants to produce the fruit of goodness and righteousness and truth in us. Again, these are things that should be uh, fruit that is obvious and evident to people who are looking at us. And then in Hebrews 12, 11 and James 3, 18 uh, he encourages us to have the peaceable fruit of righteousness. All of these things are fruit that should be seen in the life of a Christian. In other words, if your neighbors are going to examine your testimony, going to examine your life, they ought to be able to see those things. Does that make sense? If you were looking at a car, uh, that, those would be the, uh, the items that every car has. They're not accessories. They're the normal things that a Christian should have. And so holiness and self-control and love and all of those things, they should really characterize our lives. The people that you go to work with tomorrow should be able to see those kind of characteristics in your heart and your life every day. They should be able to see them tomorrow. Those are not above the, the norm. Those, God is saying, these are the norms. As, as you think about fruit that grows on a tree, that's the fruit that should be evident and obvious in your life. Now, I don't know about you, but I'm not a great horticulturalist. So for me to know what kind of tree a fruit tree is, I've got to see the fruit that comes out on it. I can look at a tree, and you can tell me it's a, an asparagus tree. And, and I'm good, you got that one. And, and I would believe you. But if I, you know, I can remember my mom's grandfather used to live in, uh, in Phoenixville on the backside, on the Valley Forge side of Phoenixville. I loved to go visit him because he had peach trees in the backyard. And man, I can remember we'd go and, and he'd say to us kids, go out there and get some pe peaches before the bees get to them. And sure enough, there'd be bees on the ones on the ground. We'd pick peaches off that tree and they were incredibly good. But if, they, if I didn't see the peach growing there, I wouldn't know whether that was a peach tree or a cherry tree or an apple tree. 
But the fruit shows what is in the ground, shows the seed that was planted in the ground. And as a Christian, it's important for us to realize that the fruit, God expects us to produce fruit. It means we should not look like this world we live in. Hello? And this world we live in is in a mess right now. We don't need to be a mess with them. Hello? We don't need to be a mess with them. We need to demonstrate love and joy and peace and goodness and gentleness and all of these things and holiness and righteousness. We need to be the opposite of what the world is today because we have the Holy Spirit of God has regenerated us and we have the the Spirit of God living within us and that should show up in our fruit. So God expects us, Jesus said here in verse 2, that every branch that is in him bear and that does not bear fruit is going to be taken away. He expects us to bear fruit. Let me move you to the second thing. So that's the bottom line. We're supposed to produce fruit. But secondly, I want you to see the second thing. It's also there. Go back to verse 2 with me again. Every branch in me, Jesus said, that beareth not fruit, he taketh away. And every branch that beareth fruit, now notice what he says at the end of the verse. This is our second point. He purgeth it, that it may bring forth, say the last two words with me, more fruit. Let's try it again. He purgeth it, it, that it may bring forth More. more fruit. You see, Jesus doesn't want you just to produce fruit. That's the, that's the baseline. He wants you to produce more fruit. Well, how does that happen? Well, the Bible tells us right here. The first thing that happens is, is first of all, fruit has been already evidenced and obvious. There's already been fruit there. You'll notice in that verse it says, every branch that beareth fruit. So that fruit is already there. God sees you doing some things. He sees you uh, producing those fruit, the fruit that I, we just talked about earlier there in those verses. He sees that fruit already obvious. Um, my dad and four other guys purchased a, a cat. We call it a cabin. It was more like a shed up in the mountains in Sullivan County in a little town called Shunk. Every time I talk about Shunk, somebody knows somebody that's been there. It's amazing because our, cab, our cabin is on a dirt road. You've got to drive, I think, about two miles back a dirt road to get to where our cabin is. They bought this cabin so we could go up there and archery hunt, and, and we hunt deer, we hunt turkey. And every year we go up there, we do the same thing. We all get in the cars, and we drive around all over Sullivan County looking at the apple trees because up there in the mountains, there's not a lot for the deer to eat. The one thing they love, their candy, their, uh, their favorite meal, their fa- favorite snack up there are apples. And so what we do is we get in the car and we drive around. We've got the paths already figured out. We all know where they are. And we'll drive around. Sometimes you've got to stop the car and get out and take a walk into the woods base because there's an apple tree in the middle of the, the woods somewhere. But we know where they all are. We all go. We all go out. We're like a bunch of little kids on a scavenger hunt. And we go and we look, and if the apple tree has no apples on it, we don't even spend any time. We turn right around, get in the car, and go somewhere else. By the way, we're not interested in apple tree without apples, and neither are the deer. So we want to go where the apples are. And some years we have the problem that there's apples everywhere. Now, most years that doesn't happen. But when that happens, then you don't have any idea where to go. But if we, we check out the fruit on those trees, and, and the main attraction for the deer are those apples, and it's our main attraction too. So it is normal 
for a Christian to produce fruit. It's normal for a believer uh, to have fruit in their life. That's the first thing that we learn about, more fruit. But the second thing I want you to see is there in verse 2 as well. He purgeth it. That's not easy to say together. He purgeth it. What does that actually mean? Purging is the idea of, of cleansing from impurity. So what the farmer will do who wants to have fruit on his fruit trees, he examines that tree. And, and by the way, you've done this as well if you have bushes or whatever at home. And you'll look and see, uh, Terry and I bought two little cherry trees last year. They were only about that tall. Uh, one of them died. I don't know what happened to that one. The other one, it died from the halfway point up. But the rest of it was still alive. So we cut off the dead part and all the little branches that were dead around and man it's full of leaves right now it looks great we're hoping that it it survives we'd love to get some cherries off of it now it went from here though to here so it might be a little while till we get cherries but it's healthy and it's growing why because we purged it we cut off the dead parts so that the living parts were not wait the the energy that was being pumped through that tree was not wasted on any dead limbs whatsoever And if you and I want more fruit in our lives, by the way, I hope you do. I hope you want fruit, but I hope you want more fruit. If you want more fruit in your life, then it's going to involve some pruning. You're going to have to allow God to come along and cut away some of the dead and decaying parts of of your testimony in your life and your behavior and your habits. We have to get to the point where we're willing for God to do that spiritual surgery in us that will allow the parts of us that are living to thrive and grow and those things that are dead and and dormant to be cut off and thrown into the the fire at that point. So what I want to challenge you with, uh, Paul wrote about husbands sanctifying their wives and cleansing it in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 26. And how do they cleanse it? He said they cleanse it with the washing of water listen to me, by the word. Here it is. Now, if you don't like your Bible, you're not going to have more fruit. I'm just going to tell you right now. If you don't read your Bible, there's no way you can have more fruit. You might have fruit, but you're not going to have more fruit. You know, when when I open this book every morning and I read it, I, I share with the deaf, I read the Bible every day, not because somebody requires me to. I don't have a mother or father looking over my shoulder saying, did you read your Bible today? Nobody does that with me. I do it because I need pruning every day. And the only place I'm going to get it is right here in this book. Pastor Wendell does not live at my house. I can't turn to pastor and say, hey, can you preach for me today? I need a message this morning. I don't have that. You don't have that. He couldn't do that. By the way, if he did that, you would probably kick him out. We don't have that, but we do have this. And so the Holy Spirit that I pray that leads my pastor, I pray will lead me. And I pray that when I get in this book, that that he will use this book to convict me, of my sin to convince me of what I'm not doing that I should be doing and to give me the answers to what I should be doing that needed need to be added to my life this book is a key for me it's a key for you Um, I will say to you that the cleansing that I need the pruning and purging that I need is going to come straight from the word of God I am convinced today 
and I've said this for years, I'm even more convinced now than ever. Multiple Christians, I would say, I, I, I think it would scare us if we knew the statistics, the, the real statistics on who actually reads their Bible every day. Christians I'm talking about now. I'm not talking about the world. I'm talking about believers who actually make time every day to purposely read through the Word of God. I think it would scare us how few people there are. It should scare us. Can I be honest with you? We have an anemic, illiterate, scripturally illiterate family of God today in many cases. Now, I think our church is probably better than most because we hear it all the time. We're encouraged all the time to read our, read our Bibles. But I'm going to tell you, this is the key to our lives having more fruit because it's only going to be when we spend time in the Word of God that we get the cleansing that we need, that we get the purging that we need. That doesn't come necessarily all the time, uh, you know, from the preaching. I get tired of people who, who tell me, oh, you know, I, I'm not going to that church anymore because they didn't, they didn't feed me there. Can I tell you the truth? Your church is not responsible to feed you. Your church is responsible to lead you to green pastures. It's your, it's your responsibility to take what's there and take it in so you're healthy and the nutrients get to where they need to be. I want to really encourage you and challenge you to read your Bible, get into the Word of God. Uh, uh, you know, and, and what happens, and Pastor Elstock preaches so well this morning, what happens when we take in the Word of God is then God expects us to give that out to someone else. Are you with me? Hello? That's the way God made us. How did you learn to do the things you did? Because your parents took the things they learned and they shared them with you. They taught them to you. We work with deaf people. And I was sharing this story uh, just a couple weeks ago with a family we were, was visiting with us. We, we met, when Terry and I first got involved in deaf ministry, we met a, a young deaf couple. Uh, both of them were profoundly deaf. They couldn't hear anything. They had two little girls. I think they were seven and four. They were beautiful little girls. And, and uh, the first time I went to the home to visit, uh, the seven-year-old was standing on a, stair, a stairway going up like this, and I'm standing there, and I'm pitiful in sign language. I'm awkward. I'm upside down. I'm making all kinds of mistakes. I'm, I'm frustrated with myself, and I'm thinking, what's the sign for that? I can't think of anything. And after a little bit, this, this girl looks at me. I, I'm thinking everybody in the home's deaf. Are you with me? And the little girl looks at me, and she's seven. She says, your signs are really bad. <laughs> I was like, I know they are. I said, uh, can you help me? She said, sure. She comes down off the steps, and she interprets for me, which was wonderful. Well, we invited that couple to come to our home for dinner. And uh, we had never had a deaf couple in our home before. And, uh, they, and we lived about 30 minutes from the center of Westminster where they lived. And uh, so it was a little dry for them to come out. This is before cell phones. I know that's hard to believe there was a time like that, but this was before cell phones and GPS and all that. And so we had told them how to get to our house, and we set the time, I think, like 5 o'clock, and we're there at 5.30. They're not coming. 6 o'clock, they're still not coming. At 6.30, I remember saying to Terry, I think they're not coming. And, and I, it didn't upset me too much because she had made a really special meal and I was going to eat it no matter whether they came or not. But we're wait, finally, when they, we see them come down our driveway. I said, oh, they're here. And so they came in. We had a wonderful meal together and a f- just wonderful fellowship. And, and uh, the, the guy and I, we went downstairs to play a little ping pong and the wife was upstairs uh, with my wife. And she asked my wife a question. She said to my wife, um, 
how do my girls speak? How is their speech? And Terry said, oh, they're, they're great. And she said, because neither of us speak. And we don't know what they sound like. We, don't, we sit them in front of the television so they can learn how to speak. And we wanted to make sure they could, they could speak well. Well, they were brilliant kids, and they were great. But I think about that. Our kids learn how to talk because of the way we talk. We're privileged to have uh, Jesse and Monica's five kids have been with us since Wednesday. They're over here, the fine-looking ones sitting there, so thrilled right now with their poppy. Uh, but, but you know what's interesting? I hear them saying phrases that I said to their mother, like bugger, you know, words like that that aren't really in English language. But I hear them saying that because I taught their mother that, and she taught them that, whether we know it or not. Our children learn from getting what we learn, and by the way, that's discipleship. So as you, if, if you're going to take in the Word of God, I promise you, the Word of God will not stay in you. It will spill out of you in other ways. And I want to really encourage you, if you want, remember, fruit is just the, the flat line. That's the bottom line. More fruit comes when we're purged, and fruit has already been in us, but we're purged, and God cuts off some areas that need to be cut off, and he encourages us to go forward from there. Let me get you to the last thing that I want you to see tonight, and that's down in verse 5. Jesus says, I am the vine, ye are the branches. He that abideth in me, and I in him, the same bringeth forth what? Much fruit. Let's try that one more time. Jesus says in verse 5, I am the vine, ye are the branches. He that abideth in me, and I in him, the same bringeth forth much fruit. Oh, oh, this is more than more. This is much. How do you produce much fruit? What is it that, that will produce much fruit? Look, drop down to verse 8 with me. Herein is my Father glorified that ye bear much fruit. So shall ye be my disciples. So I want you to see here the progression in, just in chapter 15 in these eight verses. We've gone from fruit. God definitely wants us to produce fruit, but he wants us to produce more fruit. But it's not, he's not satisfied with that. He wants us to produce much fruit. And, and I love this picture that's here. The progression from one to the other to the other. Listen to me. I, if you're going to write anything down, I know I haven't said much to write down, but here's something to write down. The progression from fruit to more fruit to much fruit is dependent upon the time we spend in the Word of God. It's not dependent on who's in, in office politically. It is not dependent on how much money is in your bank account. It is not dependent on whether you have good or poor health. The progression from fruit to more fruit to much fruit comes depending on how much time we spend in the Word of God and how much we allow the Word of God to spend time in us. You know, I, I love the message this morning. Again, I felt like it really fits so well into what I wanted to share with you tonight. When we are saved, when we trust Christ as our Savior, there should be fruit that's evident. When I'm teaching the deaf, I like to teach it this way. Let's imagine up here, this is the time before you were saved. Let's call that B.C., before Christ in your life. The day you pray and trust Jesus Christ as your Savior is here, and then there should be an A.D., amen? Hello? There should be a difference in A.D. than B.C. There should be major differences. Can I say why? You have passed from death into life. There's nothing the same. 
If you're still doing the same things 10 years later that you were doing before you got saved, you have not allowed God to do the purging and pruning in your life. And you need to let him do it. He, want, he has so much more for you. He has such better things for you on this side if you'll just surrender more. And by the way, God is not a tyrant. He gave you a free will and he allows you to make choices. Your choices you, you're, will have consequences, amen? If I, if I make poor choices, I'm gonna have consequences that are not good. But if I make really good choices, then I'm gonna have consequences that show blessing. And, it, and will be an encouragement to me. So that much fruit in our lives, is, is, it comes as we grow. He cuts away the dead parts of us, and we begin to spend more time in the Word of God, as we've already talked about. And verse 8 here has a key characteristic. Look at it again. Here is my Father glorified that ye bear much fruit. Did you catch that? Who gets glorified when you produce much fruit? Who? Your heavenly Father gets glory. Hey, I don't know about you, but I've stolen enough glory from God. I don't want to do anything else ever to steal glory from God. I want to produce much fruit. I don't want to do it for my glory because you see, Jesus said, let, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and do what? Glorify your Father which is in heaven. I want to tell you, the more you allow fruit, much fruit to be evident in your life, the more you're going you're gonna to reflect. God, the glory will not stay with you. It's going to go right to your heavenly Father. Can I tell you why? Because everybody knew you B.C. That's who you were without God. And they know who you were. They know what you were. When they begin to see you producing things that only God could produce in you, the glory cannot go to you because you didn't have it to start with. But the glory that comes to you will go to your heavenly Father. And that's much fruit. That much fruit is going is to reflect us, our heavenly Father. Now, how does this happen? Well, this is where the message goes from a nice, calm message to conviction. I'm going to warn you ahead of time. There's only one way for this to happen. Turn back to John chapter 12 with me, if you would. John chapter 12, and I want to show you a verse in here that tells us exactly what happens or how it happens. How does that much fruit take place in my life? In John chapter 12, again, Jesus is speaking. Look what he says in verse 24. He says, Verily, verily, I say unto you, except a corn of wheat fall into the ground and die, it abideth alone. But if it die... It bringeth forth what? Much fruit. The key for you and I to produce much fruit is for us to die. That's not talking about physical death, you understand. One day that's going to happen. But the key for this, for you and I to produce much fruit, I have to get out of the way, I have to die to myself, and I have to allow God to live in me the way he wants to. There was a little book when I was first going into, into college that we were required to read. It was just a, a little tiny booklet like this. I liked it because the other books we were required to read were over 100 pages. This one was about 20 pages, and it was this little booklet. It was called My Heart, Christ's Home. How many of you have read that little booklet? My Heart, Christ's Home. Oh, just a few of you, all right. I'm glad some of you. That was a great book, wasn't it? And it was a book, really, it talked about when you get saved, how the Holy Spirit moves into your life. 
and it went through the different rooms of your life as, as you, as you uh, looking at it as a house would look, like your mind was your library. Are you with me? Your, your appetites, your lusts were your kitchen. Uh, the living room was a place where you spent time in devotions with God or, or walk, running through the door without stopping. And it went through this whole thing. It came down to the last room in the house and it was the hall closet. Do you remember that? The little hall closet. Jesus had come in and he cleaned out the whole house, but he says to the, the person who's been saved, I, there's one, I still smell something really pitiful in this house. And the guy gets mad and he says, listen, I've given you every room. I got one little hall closet I'm holding on to. My stuff's in there. And of course, Jesus says, well, I'll take care of that if you want me to. And that's the point I want you to see. God will take care of the areas of your life you'll surrender to him but he won't touch them until you surrender them. How do you do it? You have to say to God, if you want to take that away, take it away. I surrender to you. This may be a silly illustration, but it's real for me. When I was in high school, I was consumed with sports. I love sports. I mean, I can remember sitting in church on Sunday morning in the fall, and all I could think about was not the message. I hope, that you, I hope you forgive me for this because it's not very spiritual. All I could think about, what time do the Eagles play today? And I wonder if their quarterback's going to play well today. And I wonder if this guy, I, I wonder, oh, that other team's playing today. If they lose, we get, my mind would just run during church time. And I will, I'll be very honest with you. I, I remember it very vividly. I was sitting right on an aisle seat in our church. We always sat in the second row. My mom didn't like to see anybody goofing off in church, so we sat right in the front. I'm sitting in the second row, right on the aisle, and God really convicted my soul. And listen, I, this is exact, I remember it happening. I said to the Holy Spirit of God, if you need to take from me sports, I give it up to you. It's become an idol to me. And God... If you make it so I can never play another sport, I surrender to that, and I, I'll give it up. You know what was great? I thought for sure I was going to become handicapped for some reason after that. I really did. I thought God's just going to say, okay, I got you now. Poop, you can't walk anymore. No more sports for you, you know? And, and I really thought that would happen. But you know what God did? I gave him sports, and he took it, and he made it better, and he gave it back to me. And for about 20 years of my life, I had the privilege to coach young men in soccer, basketball, different sports, baseball a little bit. I loved the sport, but God gave it back to me, and he let me use it as a tool to influence young men for many years. And I, I praise God for that. That's kind of the way God does it. But you know what I said to God? God, sports is going to be dead to me. God said, thank you. I'll take it. I'll give it back to you better. I'll give it back to you where it, I'm in charge now. And it's no longer your idol. I'm going to let you enjoy it the real way it should be enjoyed. But if a corn of wheat has to fall in the ground and die. So listen, let me, let me, I studied this a little bit. This is amazing. I hope you can stay with me, all right? One ear of corn. Are you with me? Everybody can picture an ear of corn. I didn't bring my bag up here like Pastor Colton. I'm sorry. I was going to bring a bag, but I couldn't find an ear of corn, so I was kind of stuck. One ear of corn, they tell us, has between 500 and 1,200 kernels per ear. Each kernel, if taken and placed in the ground, dirt put over, water on it, sun shines, and a stalk will grow up, right? How many ears will come on each stalk? Two. 
So one seed dropped in the ground will, will grow one stalk, will produce two ears of corn. How many kernels of corn? Let's, let's estimate somewhere between 500 and, and 1,200 on per ear. We'll say 800 just for fun. So each, each kernel of corn dropped in the ground produces 1,600 other kernels. Does that make sense? Are you all with me? Some of you are. Laura, you're still awake. You told me you're going to sleep. One kernel of corn is going to produce about 1,600 more kernels of corn. But it can't happen if it stays in a bag in the barn. What Pastor Aylstock preached about this morning is this very principle. Do you remember when he talked about the, the, the couple that, uh, that, that got discipled? They moved to another state. Do you remember that? And then they got a discipleship program in their church, and their daughter, was it their daughter, Pastor, who is the missionary we saw up on the board? I'm sorry, I was interpreting, so I couldn't get all the, the names and everything. And then he talked about, they have three children. What, what do you think God will do with their three children? And what do you think they're going to do, all those people in their country that they're witnessing to? Do you catch that picture, folks? That's one kernel of corn dropped in the ground that dies to self and says to God, I will do whatever you want, wherever you want, however you want. God, I'm totally 100% surrendered to you. And God, out of that kernel that dies to self, produces much fruit. We can't count that fruit. There's no way you can count that fruit. My point is this, and I want you to catch it. I love Haggai chapter 2, verse 19. I'd have you turn there, but you probably wouldn't get there before the end of the message. Haggai asks a question, the prophet Haggai. In chapter 2, verse 19, he asks this question. Is the seed yet in the barn? Is the seed yet in the barn? Folks, we cannot produce fruit, more fruit, or much fruit if the seed is in a sack inside the barn now I don't mean to disrespect our church but this is like the barn and we're the seeds it's warm here well nice it's cool tonight thankfully it's cool in here it's nice temperature nice soft seats it's a nice place we have our friends and family as Pastor Eifert talked about our brothers and sisters are here we love the fellowship we love the music we love all the things that happen when we come here we love coming here and we look forward to being here but this is the barn and if we come here and all we do is sit here and take in and take in and take in and we become spiritual gluttons we don't ever go out and give anything to anyone outside of this barn. The seed is going to rot in this barn. It's going to rot in you. It's going to rot in me. I don't know about you, but that bothers me. If, if people are hungry and need to be fed, I'd like to take my kernel of corn and drop it in the ground and watch it produce two ears that will produce up to 1,600 more kernels of corn. Can I say to you tonight, we're living in a world that desperately is so desperately hungry for what we have in Jesus Christ. Oh, don't let them fool you. I know they curse his name. And I know they mock Christians. I know that. I've been there. I just preached for the deaf yesterday a, serv a sermon on the great white throne. And I, I talked about when I was at Springford High School over here. And I would try to witness to my unsaved friends there in high school in the 70s. 
I had friends tell me, oh, I don't believe in heaven. I don't believe in hell. I don't believe in the Bible. And they mocked me. You know what? It's all right. Because some of them are in church here now. I love that. But they'd mock me back there. I remember one guy telling me, he told me right to my face, hey, I'm going to go to hell, and I'm going to have a beer party there with all my friends. By the way, he's not. He will not have that party. And it doesn't matter whether he believes in the Bible. He doesn't matter if he believes in heaven or hell. And by the way, it doesn't matter if you believe it. It's true, and it's real, and it's going to happen. So what I want to do, even though somebody may mock me, that's all right. I'd rather drop that seed of corn in the ground and it get hard and never rain and the sun doesn't shine and it doesn't produce a stalk. But I'm going to drop another one over here and hopefully that one will get some, some good nourishment and it'll grow. And even if that one does, I'm going to drop another one here. But I can tell you right now, if I scattered corn all over this platform to this, this evening, none of this is going to grow corn up here. Hello? I'm not teaching anything major here, all right? But corn doesn't grow unless it gets in the ground and it dies. Jesus said in Matthew 16, 24, listen to these words. You've heard it preached before. Jesus said to his disciples, if any man come after me, if any man will come after me, let him deny himself. First thing Jesus says, deny himself. Do you know what that means? Die to himself. Take up his cross and follow me. He's not my disciple. And I want to tell you tonight, uh, that verse that, that Pastor Aylstock used this morning in 2 Timothy 2, the things that thou hast heard of me among many witnesses, the same. Listen, God's not asking you to recreate. He's not asking you to create anything. All he's asking you to do is take what you've gotten and give it to somebody else. And I really do want to challenge you. I believe that that message we heard this morning is one of the most important and timely messages we could hear today because we need to be producing, reproducing disciples today in this world. That's the hope for our world. That's the hope for America. It's not in a vaccine. It's not in a political figure. It's not in the economy. It is in how many of us will take the things we have seen and heard from God and pass them on to someone who's desperately wanting to know them. Will you take the challenge? Will you say to God tonight, God, I'm not just satisfied with fruit. I'd like to have more fruit. I'd like to get in your word more. I'd like your word to do the pruning in my life. But God, I'm not satisfied with that. I want to, glor I want to give you much fruit that glorifies you and doesn't glorify me but glorifies you i want to do the things that will result in other people's salvation because i have died to myself i hope you'll take that challenge bow your heads with me if you would with your heads bowed and your eyes closed tonight let me just say this if you're here tonight and you don't know for sure if your life ended right now that you would be in heaven I've got to tell you what I said to you, what I said earlier just in passing. Heaven is real and heaven is real or hell is real. There's no place in between. When you die, you're going to be in one or the other. And you will not have a chance to make that choice once you have died. It will be decided while you have lived. If you're here tonight, you don't know for sure if you died right now that you would go to heaven. I want to encourage you. The Bible says all of us are sinners. And that sin doesn't allow us to go to heaven. It blocks us from heaven. But Jesus came without sin, died in your place. 
and offers you forgiveness of sin because he rose from the grave. But you have to receive that for yourself. It's not something your parents can receive for you or your church can give you. It's something you have to ask for and receive on your own. If you're here tonight, you say, Jim, I'm not 100% sure if I died right now. I'm not 100% sure that I'd go to heaven. Is there anybody like that? Would you just raise your hand quickly? I will not embarrass you, I promise. Anybody like that? I'm not 100% sure. I'd like to know for sure. Anybody? I'm looking around for a moment. Head still bowed, eyes still closed. Christian, this is not a popular message, I promise you. It's not one that I think a lot of churches would be willing to even talk about. But folks, we are living in the days when I believe we could see the eastern sky split and the trumpet sound. This is no time for us to back up. This is the time for we who are believers to become serious with our commitment for God. What does that involve? It involves getting in the Word of God until the Word of God gets in us. That requires some sacrifice. It goes beyond that, though, and it requires us saying to God, I will not hold the steering wheel of my life. I hand it over to you, and I want you to drive my life. I want to die to myself, my desires, the things that I think are important, and I want to make the things you think are important top on my list. I hope God's spoken to some hearts today. Right where you are right now, this is the invitation, folks. It's not going to be fancy. If you're here tonight, you say, well, Jim, as I look at my life honestly before God, I know I've produced fruit, but I've not produced more fruit. I have not given the word of God the place of predominance in my life or priority in my life that it deserves. Some of you need right now just to say to God, God, I want to start reading your word every day. I want to get serious about reading your word. Some of you, God, you say, I'm reading my Bible, but, but I still have kind of been holding on to the reins, and I'm still in charge in my life in some areas. And I just need to let my hands off of those reins. I need God to be in charge and driving my life. Would you take time just now and just ask God to move you from wherever you are to the next level? Dear Heavenly Father, as we think about this passage, it's the picture of us abiding in the vine, staying connected to Jesus. How many times we saw in Scripture where Jesus left the multitudes and went alone to pray and to commune with you. And he quoted Scripture constantly throughout his earthly ministry. He knew your word. He lived by it. He lived it. Lord, help us follow his example. We want to be connected to Jesus Christ so, so closely that what you want for us is what we want for us. And what you want to produce in us, we will see being produced in us. God, it's difficult because we have gained so many things that we're holding on to. And, and we've latched on to things that have no business being in our lives and consuming the amount of time they consume. God, we pray tonight you'd help us to surrender those things, to release our grip, to allow you to do in us the work that you want so we can produce much fruit that will glorify you. We ask these things in Jesus' name.
Let's open our Bibles to 2 Timothy chapter 2. And thank you, choir, for that number and the blessing of it. 2 Timothy chapter 2. We're doing something abnormal this morning. For me, in the New Testament. I do know there is a New Testament. I normally speak out of the Old Testament, but I do know there's another part, and we're going to be looking in the New Testament this morning in 2 Timothy chapter 2. Okay, you found it? Let's everybody stand, and I'm going to read a few verses to us out of this epistle from the Apostle Paul to his son in the faith, Timothy. And it says in chapter 2, verse 1, God says, Thou therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And the things that thou hast heard of me among many witnesses, the same commit thou to faithful men who shall be able to teach others also. And now Paul gives some analogies. And in verses 3 and 4, it's that of a soldier. Thou therefore endure hardness as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. No man that worth entangles himself with the affairs of this life, that he may please him who hath chosen him to be a soldier. And then he goes to an athlete in verse 5. And if a man also strive for masteries, yet is he not crowned. It's talking about the crown, that, an olive wreath crown that an Olympian champion would wear. Crown unless he strive lawfully. And then third analogy is a farmer, the husbandman, that laboreth must first be partaker of the fruits. And then he concludes its little section with, Consider what I say, and the Lord give thee understanding in all things. You may be seated. <clears throat> Timothy was instructed to be strong and to fight well and to strive lawfully and to labor hard. And in this fighting and striving and laboring, all of that was to do, verse 2, to pass along the things that I have taught you. And in passing these on, do it like a soldier, do it like an athlete, do it like a farmer, so you don't get entangled and you strive lawfully and you practice and you give it out and then you take of the fruit like a farmer does in passing on to others, Timothy, what I am passing on to you. Let's pray together. Father, I pray that your word would find a resting place in our hearts. May we consider it carefully the message that you have for us this morning from your word. May we take it to heart. God, help us to use the one life you've given us and to use it fully for you. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. <clears throat> a couple weeks ago, Susan and I went to Virginia and uh, we had a discipleship weekend at Community Baptist Church, speaking on Saturday night and three times on Sunday introducing the church to a discipleship ministry and the discipleship material that we use. And the people have embraced that. A number of people signed up, uh, 20, 25 or so, to get involved in discipleship at their church. 
We've had about 450 churches over the years purchase our discipleship material. And we just went through a major revision of the, the material, almost, well, we went back to square one and just started from scratch and, and rebuilt it. And churches are starting to purchase that and, because they want discipleship in their churches. I want to ask you a question this morning. Why are you here? Why are you here? Mm-hmm. I guess I'm not specifically asking why are you here at Valley Forge Baptist. Why are you here on planet Earth? What, it was, what was God's purpose in putting you on this earth? You're here, I'm here for a reason. There are 7.87 billion people on earth as of 2021, and you are one of those people. And every one of us is precious to the Lord, and he has us here. Now, are you here by accident on this earth, or are you here by intent? Now, if you ask an evolutionist, the answer is really simple. You're here by accident. You have no place to go. You have no purpose. What you have to look forward to is the grave. You have a destiny with dirt. That is a very cheerful worldview. <laughs> you can have that worldview if you want it. But if you ask Almighty God, that answer also is simple. You're here by divine intent. Your life has purpose, it has meaning. God has focused his love on you. He sent his son Jesus Christ, who came voluntarily. 2,000 years ago and gave his life. He did not die for a cause as a martyr. Jesus died for people as a Savior. That's a huge difference. He's here as a Savior. And he gives us, in the Scripture, multiple purpose statements as to why he came. Organizations have purpose statements. Businesses have purpose statements. Churches also have purpose statements. And if I were to ask you about Valley Forge Baptist, I bet you know it. Pastor Wendell has talked about it repeatedly for more than 30 years. We are here to glorify God and fulfill the Great Commission. We have a purpose for existing as an organization. Jesus came with a purpose to this earth, and he gives us purpose statements in in the gospels and we're going to look at some of these purpose statements why did jesus come what was god's purpose in sending jesus to this earth you can look in your notes here's some of these statements to the pharisees jesus said this i am come that they might have life and that they might have it more abundantly he came to give us abundant life God wants us to enjoy that. Now, to the 12 disciples, Jesus said this, Even as the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister, and to give his life a ransom for many. Jesus came to give his life as a ransom payment. And behind me is a wooden cross. And on top of that cross, I notice, is a crown of thorns, Jesus came to the cross. 
He was crowned with thorns. He suffered the indignity of Roman crucifixion, and he did it to pay a ransom price for our sins. Somebody is paying for our sins. Jesus paid for them, and that can be applied to our account, or we can pay for it ourselves. Well, how do you pay for your sin? You die and go to hell. That's what God says. But Jesus died in our place. A ransom payment. To the apostles, or to the scribes, to the scribes one day that watched Jesus eat with tax collectors and sinners, the scribes murmured about that. And Jesus answered their murmuring. And he said, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. You know why Jesus hung around sinners? They needed a savior. He hung around those that were more open to hear what he had to say. To the apostles, Jesus said this, Think not that I am come to send peace on the earth. I came not to send peace, but a sword. For I am come to set a man at variance against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a man's foes shall be they of his own household. What did Jesus mean by that? He came to bring truth. In fact, he was truth incarnate. He said, I am the way, the truth, the life. He came to bring truth. He came as the truth. And as he brought truth, it was like, it was like drawing a line in the sand. And everybody had to line up on one side of that line or the other. And they did line up. Some stepped on the truth side of the line and accepted Jesus as truth and believed as truth and others stayed on the other side of the line and didn't believe in Jesus and didn't accept the truth that God sent them and it even happened among families and some of you can testify that that still goes on when you trusted Christ as Savior some of you your family did not understand and maybe your family said you need to give up this new idea that you have. You need to give up this faith. You need to come back to the way that you were raised. And they, they took a stand against the decision that you made. That's what Jesus is speaking of when he's talking about a, a line drawn, a, like a sword dividing. And a man's foes are going to be that of his own household. Families were divided when salvation came to people because some didn't want that. They didn't believe that. Jesus told his disciples to count the cost of discipleship. And for some people, it cost them dearly, even family relationships. To the blind man, Jesus said this, For judgment I am come into this world, that they which see not might see, and that they which see might be made blind. For judgment am I coming to this world. What did Jesus mean by that? He said that to the blind man that now sees. Earlier in the day, he healed this blind man. He, he made clay and put it on the eyes of the blind man, a man that was blind from birth, grew into adulthood, so he's been blind a long time, and he put the clay on his eyes and told him to go wash in the pool of Siloam. And he went and did. And when he washed the clay off his eyes, he could see for the first time in his life. Well, a crowd gathered around. And, and how do you see? 
How did this happen? All they've ever known of this man is that he was born blind. Probably listened to him beg day after day after day. Alms, alms, because he's blind and he can't work. And now he washes his eyes and he sees and, and it causes a commotion and they gather around. And How did this happen? And he said, a man named Jesus anointed my eyes and I see. And the Pharisees also saw. Now they gather around with a different purpose. Now they do want to know, how did this happen? So he tells the blind man, now seen, tells the Pharisees about Jesus, and they're not even sure he was even born blind. So they want to find out from the parents. And the parents want nothing to do with the Pharisees. The Pharisees are dangerous. They weld a lot of power in Jerusalem at this time, at this point in history, and the parents didn't want anything to do with them. And so when the Pharisees called them and they have to come, and they said, is this your, is this your son? Yes. Was he born blind? Yes. How does he see? We don't know. They've already decided. We're not, we're not going to get involved in this confrontation. Because those Pharisees had the power to kick him out of the synagogue. And you get kicked out of synagogue, that can ruin you financially. That can ruin you socially. You are ostracized. You're a businessman and no one will do business with you. You're ruined. So they wanted nothing to do with, with this. So they said, that's our son. He's of age. He's an adult. Ask him. And they went back to him and they asked. And the guy told him again, it was... Jesus, this is what Jesus did. So this dialogue took place, and you know, they were ticked off because all this happened on the Sabbath day was a violation of their misinterpretation of the law. It, it, it didn't match their traditions. And uh, they finally kicked him out. So this guy went from a blind member of the synagogue to a seeing ex-member of the synagogue. And I believe he got a good deal. He got a good deal when Jesus came. And, but he's kicked out. Jesus hears about it, and Jesus looks for him that day, finds him, and now the conversation, he says this, to the blind man now seeing, for judgment am I come into this world that they which see not might see. That is the blind man that now sees. And not just physical sight, but spiritual sight. Here's a guy that has met Jesus and he's seen the miracle power of Jesus and he's trusting in Jesus. He now has physical sight. He has spiritual sight. He's the blind man now seeing. And Jesus said, and that they that see might be made blind. And that's the Pharisees. They thought they could see, but they were blind as bats. Bats are blind, aren't they? I assume that. We say that. They were blind as bats. There is nobody that is blinder than the person that rejects truth and doesn't know it. There's nobody more blind than a religious person that thinks they're saved based upon their religion and based upon the works they do. There's a blindness there. And Jesus does want to take the blinders off, but people that persist in the blindness that is there's a judgment that's pronounced and that's what jesus was speaking of to the blind man that's 
you're lining up on one side or the other and there's a judgment. Jesus didn't come to condemn people. And we know that from John chapter 3. And we all know, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. In the next verse, he came not into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might believe. The world was condemned already. They just didn't know it. And when Jesus drew the line in the, in the sand and gave truth, some people persisted in their false belief, and that was a sign of judgment. Now, one more. To the indignant disciples... They were indignant because James and John had asked Jesus in the kingdom, can we sit on your right hand and your left hand? Can we have the best seats in the house in the kingdom? And when the ten heard that the two were already jockeying for position in the kingdom, oh, they were indignant. And then Jesus said to the twelve, the two that were jockeying and the ten that were indignant, he said this, even as the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister. Jesus came to minister. Minister means servant. That's what the word means in your Bible. Minister means servant. And to minister means to serve. Jesus came to serve people. At the Last Supper, the night that he was arrested, betrayed and arrested, he said to the disciples, For whither is greater, he that sitteth at meat or he that serveth? Is not he that sitteth at meat? That's the higher position, the one that sits in the seat and others serve. But then Jesus said, But I am among you as he that serveth. And he gave them an illustration by getting on his knees and washing the disciples' feet and he wants them to go and do thou likewise. He wants the disciples to serve people. Jesus was all about people. He focused on people. He ministered to people. And in his great intercessory prayer, that one prayer in John chapter 17, 40 times he mentions the disciples. He's focused on them and what they're going to face. And people were on his heart. So why? We know why Jesus came. Why are we here? Why did he place us on this earth? Right before he ascended back to heaven, he gave what we call the Great Commission. He charged them to take the gospel around the world. His vision was reaching the world by multiplying disciples. That was his plan. Reach the world by multiplying disciples. Now, you, you see a diagram there on your page? Does that make you go into tremors? Does that, do you start convulsing when you see somebody? Some of you are nodding your heads. You, you, you like diagramming sentences in English about like I did. <clears throat> that is the Great Commission diagram. So did, you, did you do that? No, I had to have somebody do that for me. I failed diagramming class. Ye disciple nations, that is the commission. Ye disciple nations. The word disciple, ye disciple, is, the, is translated in our Bible, teach, and, but it means disciplize. It means to bring that person to an understanding of faith in Christ and, and train them. Ye disciple nations. In order to do that involves going and baptizing and teaching. And the second teaching is a different word. And, and he says, teach them all things whatsoever I have commanded you. What I've told you, you tell them. We're to, we're to pass that on. Now that is the same vision 
that the Apostle Paul had in 2 Timothy 2 and verse 2 where he says to Timothy, and the things that thou hast heard of me among many witnesses, the same commit thou to faithful men who shall be able to teach others also. Don't miss the word thou and the things that thou hast heard, Timothy. Thou, second person singular. Somebody had to tell me that too. Second person singular. It means, it means the individual. The individual is important to God. Jesus focused on individuals. God is interested in the individual. Jesus died for the individual. And if you were the only person on earth, he would have died for you as an individual. God is interested in individuals. And the things which thou hast heard of me, oh, thou and me, that implies relationship. There was a relationship between Paul and Timothy. Paul was the discipler. Timothy was the disciple. Paul was the teacher. Timothy was the student. There was this relationship between Paul and Timothy. And Paul was passing on to Timothy what God had told Paul. And he told Timothy, now you take it and you pass it on to the next person so that person can teach others also. Discipleship was passing on the information that Jesus told us to pass on. All things whatsoever I've commanded you. Every one of us, folks, every one of us has the responsibility to disciple. Every one of us. Every one of you have the responsibility to disciple. In some way, in some fashion, you take what God has given you and you pass it on the truth of God, you pass it on. And that can be a parent passing it on to a child. That can be a, a teacher passing it on to a class. There's, there's multiple ways to pass it on. But we are called to disciple nations, not countries, but the people of those land masses. It is every one of our responsibility somehow to pass it on. And I want you to hear a testimony from a lady who has done that. She has passed it on. So, Ann, why don't you come? and share a testimony. She has been involved in discipleship. Thank you. Good morning. Um, a friend of mine, a dear friend of mine, shared with me uh, this analogy several years ago. She said that studying God's word is like drinking the ocean through a straw. I thought that was a very good analogy because God's word contains everything that we need that pertains to life and godliness, 2 Peter 1.3. Discipleship is coming alongside a fellow believer and taking small sips out of the vast ocean of God's word together and helping to equip us, that will help to equip us for God's work. I have had the honor of discipling uh, a few ladies um, formally through the discipleship program that the church has to offer. And several things happen when I've had the opportunity to do that. Uh, first of all, I learn God's word better. It seems like every time I go through the material um, at a different stage in my life, I learn about um, uh, I, things stick into my mind a little bit more than they did the previous time I had gone through it. And it happens any time I have an opportunity to share a testimony or teach, I always benefit from learning God's word. Uh, another thing that happens is a sweet friendship develops. Some of my closest friends are people who I've had the privilege to disciple. Uh, but the most exciting part of it 
is to see God work in the life of someone um, that you pour your life into. When they start to um, uh, put off the old man and start putting on the new man, and you have an, a front row seat to watch that happen, that's exciting, and that's thrilling when that takes place. So I just want to encourage you, if you have an opportunity to disciple someone, pick up your straws and start doing so. You will be blessed. Thank you. One person reaching one person can make a difference. We won't know until we get to heaven how great that difference is. You just won't know. It's like throwing a rock in the lake and the, the ripples just keep going out and going out and going out. You invest in people and you don't know the end of that. Not till we get to heaven. I want you to uh, listen now to someone that you know well but haven't seen for a little bit giving a testimony about discipleship. I remember one of the first Timothys I had the pleasure to disciple. It was a man who, prior to salvation, would have nothing to do with our church. In fact, being that his wife was a born-again Christian and he was raised Catholic, she would take their two children to our church one Sunday and he would take them to the Catholic service the next Sunday. We would ask about visiting the home and the wife would say, not now, not if you want me and the kids to continue coming here. But God, after much prayer from the wife and our church family softened his heart, and one Thursday night on visitation, he accepted Christ as his personal Savior. Soon thereafter, I was given the privilege and joy to disciple this new and eager-to-grow Christian. As usual, I learned and in many ways grew as much as he did, it seemed. We would meet mostly over lunch, and he would always come well-prepared with testimony and questions about what he was learning through the discipleship and his devotions. His desire to grow in the practical, helpful discipleship materials was such a thrill and an encouragement for me. Although we completed the formal discipleship program a long time ago, I still have the pleasure to see and hear how God is working in his and his family's lives. I remember one Monday night he called and asked about a particular verse that he couldn't find the reference for. He wanted a witness to an inquisitive co-worker. We found the verse, and the next day he witnessed to his co-worker, and that co-worker and soon thereafter his wife accepted Christ as personal Savior. They started to attend our church and went through the discipleship program and became very involved. And they later were transferred with work to another state. They first found a good church to attend, and then they found a place to live. And they have become very involved, and he now serves as a deacon with that church. Because I want to give the rest of the story. Now, the one that Pastor Joyner is talking about is, is John Gallo. So John, raise your hand back here so you see John. And John got saved, and Pastor Joyner worked with John in discipleship. And then John reached out to Mike, a co-worker, and Mike and Jenny, they got saved, and they were growing in the Lord. And then job transfer took them out of the area, and they found a church, found a home, kept growing spiritually, and Mike became a deacon in that church their kids grew up and Kaylee grew up and I she went off to Bible college somewhere I was trying to find out the name of the college she went to she met Justin she and Justin got married and uh, this is Justin and Kaylee die and they're missionaries to Papua New Guinea and we support them Pastor Joyner John Gallo Mike and Jenny Kaylee 
on the mission field, three kids. They're going to reach people with the gospel on the mission field. They're going to train people in God's word. We don't know where it's all going to end. It just keeps rippling and rippling. Now, folks, that is discipleship investment. That's what that is. It's investment, and God uses it. And I don't know how many have been discipled and where they've gone. I know they've gone in other churches, other states. I want you to hear now a testimony from the Timothy side of discipleship. Having the A to Z discipleship program administered by a solid Christian was a valuable part of my spiritual growth. I started the A to Z discipleship program less than a month after I was saved. From the outset, it taught me so many principles I wanted and needed to learn. Also, as a new Christian, I wanted to sustain my fellowship with Jesus Christ, and this program kept me on that path. The program helped me to build my Christian foundation, and let me assure you, I was ignorant when it came to the Word of God and Jesus Christ. The program's design, reading the scripture, then looking up verses and also completing verses in the lesson, really helped me to become familiar with the books of the Bible within just a few weeks. Having a solid Christian minister the material was a real blessing. My discipler has been a Christian for over 50 years. He's a deacon in our church and he has a solid reputation in the community. Quite frankly, I thank God often for giving me such a godly teacher. My discipler explained to me how the first lessons of the of the program were really going to help to build my foundation, assurance, then Bible, Christ, and daily walk. Interestingly enough, the lesson, lessons that followed were also in direct order with how the questions were generated as I grew. I have read somewhere, we are not just saved as Christians, we are supposed to disciple as Christians. Someday when I'm more learned in the Word of God, I too want to be a discipler. Having been taught from such a solid person, I feel my foundation is built now on rock, not sand. Because of him, my seeds are planted in a fertile soil. Thanks be the God for the gift of this program and the truth of a sound teacher. We're not at the end of that story either. It just keeps rippling on. Jim went with Matt Manny when he started the church down near Upper Darby. And Jim is now over in New Jersey. He's bought the discipleship material to take to the next church that he went, that he went to. He was discipled by Don Evans. Don Evans is in heaven. And the Timothy is still going on spiritually. And he's introducing it to churches that he goes to. We started this discipleship ministry with six people, handpicked. Pastor Joyner was Deacon Joyner at the time. And he was one of those handpicked. And... <clears throat> And then we, the church was in a period of time at that time where we just had a lot of people trusting Christ as Savior and a lot of people, new people coming to the church. Kind of like what we're at, we're at right now. Have you been watching how many new people are coming to Valley Forge Baptist Temple? People getting saved and baptized and God working in people's lives? I mean, it's really a marvelous thing to see what's going on and some of those people need to be discipled. Let's do it. We started with six and then went to the auditorium on a Sunday night 
and I'm looking for more, and I'm, I'm going down the auditorium. This was years ago. Okay, I'm going to ask them to be a discipler. I'm going to ask them to be a discipler. I'm going to ask them. And so I approached these people and asked, uh, I explained what discipleship was and asked if they would do it. Over and over again, I got this. Oh, I, I, I could never do that. I, could, I do not know enough to do that. Now, I didn't say it, but I thunked it. <laughs> I thought, you don't know enough. You've been in church for years, some of them, decades. And you know, a number of those people, they said, you know, I'll give it a try. And they were trained in discipleship, and they started discipling. And some of those people came back, and this is what they said to me. You wouldn't believe it. The person I'm discipling, they don't know anything about the Bible. They just got saved. Why would they know something about the Bible if they hadn't been reading it? I'll tell you what happened. Older Christians, for the first time, and probably mostly for the first time in a long time, started investing their life in a new convert in a substantive way. And God was using them to help a new convert grow or to help a newcomer grow that was looking to get grounded in the faith. And the older Christian, they didn't realize how much they knew. They didn't realize how much Christian living philosophy that was just a part of them, the way they lived life. And in the discipleship relationship, a lot of, of that came out of the mature Christian to help the young Christian. And it just took off from there. Disciple makers, we have them in our church and they are usually unknown. They're not the person that stands up singing. Well, some of these up here are discipling, but they're not standing up here as a discipler ministering. It's kind of one-on-one and it happens behind the scenes and it's not so upfront. But you know, that's okay that it's basically unknown, that their name isn't spoken all the time because God knows the name. Like Ebed-Melech the Ethiopian. All of you know Ebed-Melech the Ethiopian, don't you? Uh, Okay, what book of the Bible is that in? Ebed-Melech the Ethiopian. That was a really important guy. But you don't know his name like you know the name Moses or uh, Paul or David. I can give you a bunch of names, and I mean, right away, you know the names. But Ebed-Melech, the Ethiopian, the man that went to King Zedekiah and spoke to the king for Jeremiah's life and then was allowed to go to the dungeon and pull Jeremiah out of the muck, and Jeremiah's life was saved because Ebed-Melech, the Ethiopian, had enough concern for that individual. And you have the book of Jeremiah in your Bible because of Ebed-Melech, the Ethiopian. But his name is not known to the masses, but it is certainly known to God. And that's the way it is with discipleship. It's a one-on-one relationship. Now, what can we know about this? In your notes, discipleship is a mandate. It is a mandate. He tells us to do it. It's a directive, not a suggestion. And many of you have probably sensed your responsibility to invest in others. And it certainly is that investment. Discipleship is relational. It's about a relationship. Now, I've given you a definition here. This definition is not found in the Bible, but the concepts are found in the Bible. And then we created the definition from the concepts. So here's here's the way we define it. Discipleship is investing your life in a relationship with another for the purpose of reproducing 
a spiritually mature follower of Jesus Christ. Now, I've got three blanks there. Would you write in these three words? Investment, relationship, reproduction. That's what we're trying to do with discipleship. I want to invest my life and my time and my interest in a relationship with somebody with the desire that out of that relationship, that person will follow Christ and reproduce. Now, he doesn't know I'm going to do this, but I'm going to have him raise his hand. He's, real, he's kind of a shy guy, so he's probably going to shoot me after the service. I want Bob Finley to raise his, to raise his hand. <laughs> All right, come on, Bob. That's my Timothy right there. Bob, we spend time together. We have relationship together. We talk to each other on the phone at times. Sometimes I call him. Sometimes he calls me. I can tell you this. He likes pot roast from Bob Evans' restaurant. I know, I know what he likes. And he knows what I like. And I like chicken wildfire salad. I could order for him. He could order for me. Relationship so that now two people are walking with Christ to try to reproduce themselves. We have a lot of people that do this in the prison ministry through a pen pal program. And uh, one of the men in the church in the morning hour told me about the, his involvement in the prison ministry with discipleship lessons and the blessing that it is to get a letter back from an Somebody in prison that will write pages and kind of pour their heart out. They're locked up. And the connection with the discipler is a spiritual connection that is meaningful to them. Discipleship is transformational. There is transformation that takes place. You reproduce what you are. Wherever you're at spiritually, folks, you can take your Timothy up to the level where you're at, but you'll never take him beyond the level where you're at but you can bring them up to that level. You, they, they start out, they don't know anything. You can help them grow in their Christian life. And I guarantee you, if you've been saved any amount of time, you know more than someone that just got saved. Know more about the scripture. Our community needs Christians to take an interest in new converts. And our church needs that. Take an interest in new converts and newcomers. Discipleship is not primarily academic. Don't think that that's just primarily academic. It's primarily relational. The Bible says this in Mark chapter 3, that Jesus, he chose 12, he ordained 12, that they should be with him. He went up on the mountain, disciples went up with him, and he said, I want you, and 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 he chose 12 people to be with him. And so where he went, they went. What he said, they heard. What he did, they saw. They learned to live the Christian life by watching Jesus. When he got in the boat and went across the Sea of Galilee, and there were 5,000 men plus women and children there, and Jesus' heart was moved with compassion. Though he was dog-tired, he stopped and he ministered to 5,000 plus, and he gave the food to the disciples to distribute it and they were part of the miracle and they spent the time ministering to people they watched Jesus do that and then right after that he goes back to the other side of the Sea of Galilee 
And he gets off the boat and the crowd's there and a man by the name of Jairus comes up to him and says, my daughter is dying. Not just dying, the scripture says, nigh unto death. Meaning she's just about to die. She's in the last throes of this struggle. Would you come and heal her? And Jesus is going to heal Jairus' daughter. And as he's passing through the cloud, crowd somebody reaches out and touches the hem of his garment and he stops and he turns around who touched me and a lady comes forward and she falls down and she tells her story 12 years of disease and she spent all of her living and none of the physicians could help her and she touched them and she was healed and when all of that was going on the disciples are watching it and then Jairus is right there probably come on come on come on come on come on, come on. He, he wants Jesus to get to his house and people from the house come and say, your daughter's dead. Don't trouble the master. Now, if I was Jairus, I would have been upset, to be honest with you. I would have said, Jesus, if you would have just come, if you hadn't delayed, I would have been upset that he delayed. And Jesus, he knows how we think. And he looked at the man and says, be not afraid, only believe. And he took the disciples and they went to Jairus' house and Jesus and three of the disciples went in and the mom and dad and Jesus raised the gal up from the dead and the disciples saw it. And when Jesus cleansed the temple, anger, anger welled up in him and he made a, he made a scourge, literally made a whip and he used it and he chased people out of the temple and he said, my father's house is a house of prayer and you've made it a den of thieves. And he was angry and he turned over the money changers tables and he chased the people and the animals out and the disciples watched it. And they thought of the verse in the Bible that says, the zeal of thine house hath eaten me up. They saw Jesus eaten up with a zeal, angered because the house of prayer had become big business. And that is not what the house of God was about. The disciples watched it. So let's fast forward. Jesus dies on the cross. He's resurrected. Forty days later, he's ascended, gives the Great Commission. The disciples fan out, and they're in the temple this day, and Peter and John healed a man, reached down and, and said, Silver and gold have I none, such as I have give I thee. In the name of Jesus, stand up and walk. And the guy stood up for the first time, and his legs were whole, and he went leaping and jumping into the temple and praising God. And the crowd came to the temple, and they're teaching, and the Pharisees sent somebody to apprehend them and put them in jail for the night. And the next day, they stand before the Sanhedrin, and they want to know, they, they want them to not do this. Well, P Peter and John, they speak up boldly, and they say to the Sanhedrin, the Supreme Court of Israel, be it known unto you all and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom ye crucified. Now that's boldness. Whom God raised from the dead, even by him doth this man stand before you whole. This is the stone which was set at naught of you builders, which has become the head of the corner. Neither is there salvation in any other, for there's none other name under heaven given among men, whereby we must be saved. Now, the Sanhedrin, these officials, now, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were unlearned and ignorant men, they marveled and took knowledge of them that they had been with Jesus. You got it? You got what happened? 
They saw the boldness of Peter and John, and they knew they didn't go to the rabbinical schools. They were unlearned and ignorant. That's what you didn't have the formal education in our institution. That's what that means. But they were filled with boldness and they did something mighty and they took knowledge. You've been hanging around that Jesus guy. We see Jesus in you. That's what was happening. Was Jesus effective in his discipleship? Absolutely. He, Jesus transferred his life to them and they went out and they acted like Jesus. Folks, that's, that's for us. That's for us. We're to take God's word and live by it and go out and act like Jesus. We're to take what God has taught us. Jesus said, whatsoever things I have commanded you, the things that I've taught you, take that and teach others. It's transformational. And in that transformation, you get change. Change. We are trying to change people. Oh, really? Yes, because God is trying to change us. He wants us to change, to be like Christ. And I've given you a handful of verses there in your, in your notes, and I'm just going to go to Philippians 2.5. Here's one way he says it. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. We should have the mind of Christ. Oh, by the way, we will. We will. There is coming a day that we see him. And we're going to be just like him in many ways. Does the Bible really say that? 1 John 3, 2. Beloved, now are we the sons of God. And it does not yet appear what we shall be. But we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him. For we shall see him as he is. Folks, that is change. God is in the process of making us just like Jesus, and he wants to use us to help people that are coming along behind us to help them grow spiritually as well. That's what we're doing. We're in this thing together, helping people grow. Our focus should be people, like Jesus' focus was people. Are we ready to focus like that? Are we ready? Discipleship isn't the whole of the Christian life, but it is a critical part. It's something that we can do and should do. It is rewarding, and it is right. It is mandated, and it is messy. Oh, wait a minute, Pastor Elstock. I don't like that messy word. What do you mean it's messy? It's messy. Well, it can be messy. When you start working with someone, particularly if they got saved as an adult, there are issues of life that they're going through and every one of us not us i got saved younger in life if you got saved later in life you would testify to this most likely you had enough years to mess your life up to do things the wrong way and then you got saved and you learned how to do things the right way well when you disciple somebody you're helping them learn to do the things the right way there is a right way for a husband and wife to get along together and the world doesn't know it and Hollywood really doesn't know it. There is a right way to train your children. And it can be second nature to us to have the scripture, but if you don't have the scripture, it may not be second nature to the next, to unsaved people. It can get messy in the fact you're just helping them grow through some of those initial struggles of their Christian life. 
People need help. Will you be a helper? Will you be a link in a chain that helps another person grow spiritually toward God? I am grateful that somebody cared enough about me to invest in me. I want to invest to help somebody else. Folks, we're here to minister God's word to others, to help others. Would you be a part of it? Would you be a part of discipling someone? Now, we have a formal discipleship ministry, but it doesn't have to be a formal effort. There's plenty of ways that you just take God's truth and you help people grow. But we do have a formal program whereby we minister, whereby we disciple. And if you want to be a part of it, welcome aboard. We'd love to have you step up. Let's pray together. Heads bowed and eyes closed. <clears throat> Think about you and why you're here on this earth. What are you here for? There's purpose. You were created in his image, Genesis chapter 1. Psalm 139. You were blueprinted by God. All of your members were written down in God's book before there was one of them. He blueprinted you and he made you the way he blueprinted you. You're here by design. You're here for a reason. What is that? Would you, would you invest your life in other people? Maybe you're new to Christ. You haven't been saved long or new to the church. We'd love to have you as part of our discipleship ministry. We'd love to reach out to you and minister God's word and help you like somebody helped us and equip you so you can turn around and help the next person. You just think about that right now while we sing and you pray to God about this. All to Jesus I surrender All to Him I freely give I will ever love and trust Him In His presence daily Father, I pray that we'd be busy about your business and thank you for those that went ahead of us that were faithful to you and they gave us truth and we have it in our hands and we read it and it changes our lives. Help us to be an instrument in your hands to help another. In Christ's name, amen. I want you to see here in John chapter 21 and I love this story. I've preached it multiple times before, so if you've heard me say some of these things uh, before, please forgive me. I just can't help it. I love this passage, and we won't get to our question until the very end of the message. I'm just going to warn you ahead of time. If you're an A-type personality and you need that question up front, you'll have to read ahead. 
because you're not going to get it till the end. But at this point in, our, in the book of John, and by the way, John is my favorite gospel. He's the only non-synoptic gospel. He's a very unique. He includes stories that no one else includes. He includes perspectives that none of the other three gospel writers included. Um, but we come here, and Jesus has been crucified. Uh, he has been buried. He's risen from the grave. He has appeared uh, before his disciples numerous times. And we come here to the last chapter of the book of, of John, and, and we find Peter. Peter is one of my favorite characters in the Bible. I, th I, I talk to so many people that say, I really relate with Peter. I think we all do in some ways. Uh, but Peter, here's Peter, and, and he, if you remember, in, in Luke 22, he promises Jesus, and Jesus says, you all are going to betray me tonight, or you're going to, I'm not saying betray, you're all going to forsake me tonight. And Peter says, Lord, I don't care what the rest of these guys here are going to do, but I'm going to stay with you to the death or to prison. I don't care what it is, I'm going to be with you. Jesus tells him before sun rises, you're going to have denied me three times. And of course, we know that's what happened. The crow calls out and, uh, before sunrise, and uh, Peter has already denied Christ three times. He's cursed his name the last time, which is hard to fathom. And then the, the, the bird calls out, and Jesus looks at Peter, and Peter weeps. All of that took place, and, and uh, Peter's got to feel as though he is an absolute uh, and utter failure. Have you ever been there before, by the way? You don't need to raise your hand, but... I've been there. I'll raise my hand. I, I have so many times. You know, I was just sharing with a deaf guy that I disciple. I, I shared with him that I've been saved. This, this summer, I'm going to have been be, I will have been saved for 57 years of my life. Actually, I think it's 58. My math is not good. I think it's 58. And there have been a lot of times I've made God promises that I have not followed through with. And there have been many times that I've asked God for forgiveness for something, and then I'm crawling back in there just a couple of hours later asking forgiveness for the same thing. I don't know if that's ever happened to you. You're probably far more spiritual than me. But I struggle with feeling as though I'm a failure, and God should be able to find somebody way better than me to be able to do the work that he's put in front of me to do. And I continually tell God, well, God, if nobody else shows, I'll go. I think that's the way Peter felt, but Peter felt a little more than that. If you look here in, in chapter 21 with me, look at the very beginning of the chapter. Look at verse 3. Uh, well, let's go back up to verse 2. Then were together Simon Peter and Thomas called Didymus and Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee and the sons of Zebedee, we know that's James and John, and two other of his disciples. Look at verse 3. Simon Peter saith unto them, say the words out loud with me, would you, till the period, I go a-fishing. Peter said, I go a-fishing. Now, I don't know that he was saying to the other guys, hey, you guys want to go fishing? I think he just was saying to them, you know what? Jesus has risen from the dead. I'm, I'm great with that. I'm so glad Jesus rose from the dead because I know I failed him. I'm going to go back to doing what I did before Jesus called me to be a disciple. And he said, I'm going to go fishing. Now, perhaps Peter was still feeling the sting of his failure in that most recent uh, a crucial time of his three denials of Christ. I, and I think that's probably part of the reason. Uh, it's my opinion that Peter thought that because of those three failures, that Jesus would not want to use him anymore in the future. Have you ever been there? 
I've been there before too. Maybe you haven't. If you haven't, uh, I'm just going to warn you, you probably will at some point feel that way. By the way, if you're honest with yourself, you'll feel that way every day. None of us is worthy to serve the king of all kings. But Peter felt, I think, a special, uh, uh, really just a discouragement from his own personal failures. His decision to go back to fishing turned from fishing for men, which is what Jesus told him he would do, to trying to catch fish again. And of course, he says to these, these men, uh, I'm going to go, by the way, there's six of them, six of the remaining ten disciples are here in, this, in that list of, on, in verse 2, including Peter. Uh, Judas, of course, Judas Iscariot has hung himself. And uh, so there, there are these, these six men go back. They, they get on the ship with Peter, and they're going to go out to, to, to catch fish. Now, you know what strikes me here? And I want you to catch this. This is really important. Whether Peter knew it or not, he was still leading. I want you to catch this. Peter felt like a failure. Peter's going back to what he did before. And I really believe in my heart, and I don't know it because I wasn't there, but I really believe that he felt, I've denied the Lord, certainly he cannot use me. Whether Peter knew it or not, or liked it or not, he was a leader of men. He just said, I'm going to go fishing. You read it with me. I go a-fishing. That's all he said. And before he knew it, the boat's moving, and there's other guys getting in with him. Whether Peter knew it or not, he was, he was a leader. And let me say this to you, please. And I want this to be personal, personal, personally applicable to all of us all through tonight. Something that I've learned is this. When God calls you to serve him, you will fail him. Hello? When God calls you to serve him, you will fail him. But that doesn't mean God takes his hand off of you. And the things God has called you to do, he is going to do it whether you know it or not. Peter said, I'm going to go fishing. These other men came with him. The story then goes, uh, as, and we'll skip some of this. We won't read every verse, but the story goes that, and by the way, it's kind of very closely parallel to when Jesus initially called Peter. They go back out, they fish all night, they catch what? Zippo, nothing. I don't think there's anything worse than fishing and not catching anything. Well, it might be hunting and not getting... Well, I don't know, but it's, it's not fun is what I'm getting at. You, you take a worm out and you give it a swim, you know, is what, if you're not catching fish. But they weren't even using hooks and, and poles. They were, they were going through the laborious, uh, throwing the nets out and pulling them back in. And time after time after time, no fish, no fish, no fish. Finally, the sun's getting ready to come up and they, they make their way back in toward the shore. And they're on the shore. They don't realize it right away, but you know the story. It's Jesus there. And he says to them, take your nets and throw it on the other side. And of course, as soon as they do it, their, their nets fill with uh, fish. And by the way, if you haven't watched The Chosen yet, if you haven't watched it yet, the scene where, the, where Jesus tells them to throw their net on the other side and it goes in the early, it's in that first season. It's pretty incredible. Uh, how, the, the picture of it, I hope you get to see it. But uh, their nets fill with fish. And as soon as it does, one of them says, that's Jesus on the shore. Only he could do that. That's for sure. They're catching fish at the wrong time of day in the wrong spot because they obeyed the man on the shore. They recognize it's Jesus. Peter, you know good old Peter. He impulsively jumps out of the ship and he swims to the shore. He doesn't wait for the other guys and they, they come in and there Jesus prepared breakfast for them.
That brings us down to verses, uh, the verse uh, below here. I got to get on the right page if I'll find it there. Uh, chapter 21, drop down to verse 15 with me. Because in verses 15 and 16, Jesus asks uh, Peter a question. I'm going to run through this pretty quickly because I have covered this before at some point and probably you've heard it. So I won't spend as much time on it as I would if I thought you had never heard it before. But Jesus asks him, if you look there in verse 15, so when they had dined, Jesus saith to Simon Peter, here's the question, Simon, and by the way, it's repeated in verse 16 exactly this same way, Simon, son of Jonas, lovest thou me more than these? Simon, do you love me? Now, when Jesus asked the question, to us, it, it's in English, it lacks some of the depth of, of meaning that it would if you were going to study this in the Greek. Because the word that Jesus used for lovest in that, ver in that beginning of verse 15 and in verse 16, when he asked the question, do you love me? Both times, it's the word agape. What does agape mean? What's that? You're supposed to answer out loud right now. That's what the, when I'm doing this, that means I can't hear a thing. Well, agape love is what kind of love? God's love. It's sacrificial love. It's, it's the love of Jesus on the cross. That was agape love demonstrated, a life given for another. Jesus asked Peter, do you love me enough to give your life for me? And twice Peter answers the same, the same response. He says, if you look down there in the verse, he saith unto him, Yea, Lord, thou knowest that I love thee. Now the word that Peter uses here, again in English, is the same word love that we have, but it's the Greek word phileo, which means brotherly love. The city of Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love. Uh, it's the word phileo. It means, Lord, I don't love you enough to sacrifice myself for you, but I love you like a brother. Now, let me tell you that there's a reason that I think Peter answered the way he did and Jesus asked the way he did. Jesus asked Peter, will you love me enough to do what you promised me in Luke 22, that you would go to the death or go to prison for me? Do you love me like that? Peter had already committed that to Jesus in Luke 22 and failed how many times? I'm giving you help. He did it. He failed three times. He denied three times. By the way, Jesus is going to ask three questions here. These are not our questions for tonight. They're just leading us to the question. The first two times Jesus asked, do you love me enough to die for me? Peter answers, Lord, I love you like a brother. The third time Jesus asked the question, verse 17, he saith unto him the third time, Simon, son of Jonas, lovest thou me? Now, when we read our, our English version of this, it looks the same as the other two. But Jesus changes the Greek word from agape to phileo. So Jesus says to Peter, Peter, do you love me like a brother? Look at the next words, and you'll understand why uh, it says what it says. Peter was grieved because he said unto him the third time, lovest, phileo, lovest thou me? And he said unto him, Lord, thou knowest all things. Thou knowest that I, phileo, love thee. By the way, all three times Jesus told him to feed his sheep or feed his lambs. God, uh, Jesus was not done with Peter and he let him know it very, very clearly here. But that brings us to the point of our question for tonight. So this intimate time with Peter and Jesus, by the way, I don't think the other disciples probably 
heard a lot of this. Maybe John did because he recorded it. Maybe he was close enough that he overheard the conversation. Regardless of how it happens, it was a very intimate time with Peter and Jesus at this point. And I want you to see, so this, this has happened. And by the way, verse 18, let's read it because it does describe to us uh, the depth of what this meant. Verse 18, verily, verily, Jesus says, I say unto thee, when thou wast young, thou girdest thyself and walkest whither thou wouldest. You know what Jesus said, Peter? You were headstrong when you were young. And that was true, wasn't it? You did whatever you wanted, whenever you wanted, however you wanted. Lord, don't just wash my feet, wash all of me. I mean, Peter went 100, 100 miles an hour whenever he did anything. He, says, he goes on, but when thou shalt be old, thou shalt stretch forth thy hands, and another shall gird thee, and carry thee whither thou wouldest not. This spake he, signifying by what death he should glorify God. Folks, I want you to know, uh, we don't have it in our scriptures, but the history books tell us that Peter was martyred for his faith. He died demonstrating agape love. He was, they were going to crucify Peter, from what I've read. Peter said, no, I, I don't want to be crucified like Christ. I'm not worthy. They crucified him upside down. They literally spread his arms, as Jesus says here, they, they, they stretched forth his hands and others girded him. And guess what? Peter, praise God, Peter did die with agape love. Now, I don't, I'm not saying praise God he died, but I am saying praise God. What he could not promise Jesus in verses 15 and 16, he demonstrated in his life and the way that he, the, that he died. Look what it says there in verse 19. And when he had spoken this, he, that is Jesus, said to him, follow me. Now, here's where the question comes, and here's where the application comes for us tonight. I want you to see what happens. Look down in verse 20. Then Peter, turning about, seeth his disciple whom Jesus loved following. Who is that? John. Did you know that that phrase, the disciple Jesus loved, is in your scriptures four times? They're all in the book of John. And John uses them all the time to describe himself. I love that. <laughs> That's like me saying, I say this to my brother-in-laws all the time. I have three brother-in-laws. I tell them all, I'm the favorite son-in-law. I tell them that all the time. To the point where I think they believe it. I think my mother-in-law might believe it too, but I'm not positive. I think the jury might still be out. I was the favorite son-in-law, and then I messed up. But anyway, I'm, I'm trying to get back in there. But I love that Peter calls himself the disciple whom Jesus loved. By the way, Jesus did love him, amen? He gave his life for him, and John couldn't get over it. I like that he calls himself that. So Peter sees John following, which also leaned on his breast at supper and said, Lord, which is it that betrayeth thee? So we know exactly who he's talking about. Look at verse 21 now. Peter, here's our question. Peter, seeing him, saith to Jesus, Lord, what shall this man do? When I first started working on this series uh, of questions from the Bible, this is one of the very first questions that came to my mind. You say, why in the world would you think of that? Because I really believe that God, if, if you're saved and you're in this room tonight, how many of you tonight, you know if you died right now, you, you're on your way to heaven, you know it without a doubt, there's nothing in your heart that's doubtful about it. Is there anybody that's not sure? Would you raise your hand? I'll, I'll talk to you in a little bit. Anybody? So all of us here are saying we know that, that we're on our way to heaven. Hey, can I tell you something? If God saved you, he wants you to serve him. God did not save you 
to come hold that pew down that you're sitting on right now and complain about what everybody else is not doing in the church. God saved you for you to serve him. There should have been an amen after that, Lou. God saved you to what? God saved you to serve him. And he has something for you to do. And if you're not doing anything for God other than showing up at church, by the way, that's great that you show up at church. But that's just your duty, as the Bible says. That's not anything extra. You might feel great that you're here on a Wednesday night. Man, I'm getting extra credit for Wednesday night. No, you're not. That's your duty. Not forsaking the assembling of yourselves together. That's what we're supposed to do. You don't get any extra credit for that. What you get extra credit for is that God has called you and God has enabled you and God has gifted you to serve him in ways no one else can serve. And if you don't do what God gave you to do, then this whole body of Christ here, Valley Forge Baptist, suffers. The reason this question came to me is because I do this far too many times. God touches my heart. Jim, I want you to do this. And he makes it clear to me. And I don't want to do what God asked me to do. I don't know. Again, maybe I'm not as spiritual as you. But sometimes God touches my heart to do something. I say, God, I really don't want to do that. When, when God called me to work with the deaf, I've told this story before, and, and please, again, forgive me if you've heard it before. I was sitting in our church back here. We had a, a, a church auditorium probably twice the size of this one. Some of you have been there, Church of the Open Door in Westminster, Maryland. I was sitting back here on Sunday night. Uh, on a Sunday night, Ted Camp was the preacher. I didn't know him from the man in the moon. He preached, and God touched my heart, and, and God touched my heart with this thought. Somebody's got to go tell deaf people about Jesus somebody and so you know what I decided I would help the Holy Spirit I was going to find somebody that should go and help the deaf and so I began looking across auditorium you know by the way I was an assistant pastor I was teaching a young married couples class I was running a Christian camp in the summer I was teaching Bible in a Christian school I was coaching soccer or basketball I, I was a youth pastor literally I'm not lying to you Carol and, and Craig can tell you it's the truth I was doing all that stuff and I said to God, I've got enough to do. Somebody else needs to do that. And I began to pick out some people that I thought God should use. And every time I'd point there, the finger would come back and point at me. And I would say, God, not me. I'm not the guy. It has to be somebody else. Can I tell you something? I'm so grateful I'm the guy. I couldn't be more thrilled that God called Terry and I to go to this forgotten people. And we've gotten, we've gotten to pour our lives out in deaf people. And we love it. God has blessed us so much. But at the beginning, I was saying, well, what about that guy? This is what I was doing that night in Westminster, Maryland. God, well, what's that guy going to do over there? He's not doing anything. Well, what about that lady over there? She could be doing it. And I mean, I was, I was really trying to help God out. But I, I learned very early on, I'm not the Holy Spirit. And, and everybody I picked wouldn't have worked because God was picking me. But I was ready to push it off on someone else. And, and, and so I want you to see, we're going we're gonna to close with this application. So Peter says here, what shall this man do? Lord, what about this other person? 
After all, uh, John is probably far more gifted than I am, Peter might have said. Just like I said, Lord, I'll go to Ukraine, but you need to get somebody better than me to go. But if nobody goes, then I'll go. You know, and, and, and can I say this to you? What God has asked me to do is none of your business. <laughs> and what God has called you to do is none of my business. But it is my business to do what God called me to do. And it is God's business for you to do what God has called you to do. And if each of us would do that, let me tell you something. Pastor would never have to stand up and ask for volunteers to help with any ministry in this church because if we all, honestly, if we all did the one thing God called us to do, there would not be a need in this church for anything to be done other than what's being done because God has called, equipped, gifted, and sent. Our problem is too many of us are sitting in our pew saying, what shall that man do? What shall that woman do? God, what are they going to do? I, I don't, I don't want to do that, so what are they going to do? And I want to say to you tonight that um, it's, it's important that we accept responsibility to follow the plan that God has for each of us. Can I say to you, uh, the scariest thing in the world is to serve the Lord. Because he usually asks us, to go out of our comfort zone. We have a pastor who wore out Tic Tacs for the first years of his ministry because he had a fear of public speaking. Are you with me? But look what God's done with a man who said to God, I think there should be somebody else, but I'll go. Honestly, think about it. God has blessed this ministry because we have a pastor who said, I'll do what you called me to do. I'm nervous. I'm, my knees are going to shake underneath my pants while I'm preaching, but I'm going to preach. And God has blessed. I remember the first time I stepped in a prison. I was so nervous. I, I really was okay until that first door sl slammed behind me. And if you've ever been in a prison uh, ministry, sorry, if you've ever been in... <laughs> Some of you have been in prison too, but if you've ever been in a prison ministry, that door sounds like it's about 500 pounds heavy, and that lock sounds like you couldn't get it open with no matter what. It'll shake your bones. And I remember saying to God when I heard that door close the first time, God, I came in here for you. I'm praying you're going to get me out of here. <laughs> and by the way, I still pray that way. Amen? Those of you who go to prison, you know what I'm talking about. I'm sure glad. I love going in there, but I love coming out too. But you know what? God opened the door for me to do prison ministry, and I love it. I love it. I love being able to take the Word of God to people who are so hungry for Scriptures that they read their Bibles all through the day. Uh, the man that took me into prison the very first time was a little short Italian man named Leo D'Arcangelo. He, he was Pastor D. He was an assistant pastor at Bible Baptist in Westchester. And he asked me one day on a whim, he said, hey, have you ever gone to prison? Do you want to go to prison with us? And I said, sure. Because, by the way, when God opens a door, I just figure it's best to step through than to try to fight with God about it. So I just said, sure. And, uh, by the way, Pastor D'Arcangelo got saved in Holmesburg State Prison. He was 17 years old. And he got saved. And he spent another two years in prison. But when he got out, he went to Bible college from Philadelphia College of the Bible, I believe. Graduated. He was in the ministry all the way until the Lord took him home. I was in prison with Pastor D the last time he ever stepped foot in prison. He and I were there together. 
But I realize if there's a guy like Pastor D that got his life turned around, every other one of those people in that prison has that same opportunity. And I don't know who they are and I don't know where they are, but I want to go and do my part. Anyway, let me get back on track here. We, need, we are responsible to do what God calls us to do. Now, let me say to you, Peter may have felt unqualified. Jesus didn't care. Peter may have felt unqualified. Jesus didn't care because Jesus knew if Peter would stay pliable like clay in his hand, that he could mold him into the man he would need to be for the places he would need to be and do the jobs he would need to do. And can I say to you, our God is still alive today. All he's looking for is clay that is soft, a heart that is soft, a person who is willing to do whatever, wherever, whenever, as long as God goes with them. And by the way, God's ready to go. He's ready to equip. He's ready to go. He's ready to use you. What, what is the problem is, is we're sitting in our pew saying, what will this man do? Let me get you to the last and most important part, and, and we are really close to done. Jesus saith unto him, verse 22, I'm sorry, Peter, go to 21. Peter, seeing him, saith to Jesus, Lord, what shall this man do? Verse 22, Jesus saith unto him, if I will that he tarry till I come, here's a good question, what is that to thee? Now, if I was going to put that in my language, I would say, if, if I were Jesus, I'd say, mind your own business. It's none of your business what I'm going to do with John. Look at the last words. Follow thou me. I'm not talking to John. I'm talking to you. And can I say to you tonight, God's looking right at us eyeball to eyeball tonight. And he's saying to us, don't worry about what anybody else is doing for me. You do what I called you to do. Think about all that God did through Peter and John, just those two guys. Peter stands there on the day of Pentecost. By the way, he didn't even know he was preaching. I don't believe. He heard people saying they're drunk in the middle of the day and he couldn't take any more. Amen. By the way, that's the way God made Peter. Aren't you glad? Because Peter stood up and he said, we're not drunk. What you don't realize is Jesus was crucified, was buried, rose from the grave, and we saw him. By the way, while he's preaching that, God's given the gift of tongues and people in, six, I counted, I think, 16 different uh, countries that are talked about there in Acts. And they're all hearing the gospel in their own language because Peter was bold enough to stand up. By the way, Thomas didn't stand up. Wasn't his job. James didn't stand up. He's going to be the pastor of the church in Jerusalem, but it wasn't his job. It was Peter's job on that day. And what if Peter had not spent this time with Jesus and Jesus said to him, follow thou me. You do what I've called you to do and don't worry about anybody else. Peter stood up and he preached that message in Acts chapter 2. By the way, he preached it again in Acts chapter 4, almost the same exact message, which makes me feel good because I preach the same thing more than once sometimes. <laughs> hey, it worked once. I figured, he figured I'm going to throw it out and it worked again the second time. And what was he preaching? The gospel. We saw Jesus alive. We saw him crucified. We saw him buried. And we saw him rise from the grave. We saw this Savior. He is the Messiah. And by the way, he would give his life for that Messiah. 
And John would be faithful all the way to the end. He wrote the last book of our Bible. What, what, what am I saying tonight? I don't know what God's called you to do. I just know what he's called me to do. And I'm going to try to do all that I can with what I have until God calls me home. Amen? Amen. And I want you to do the same thing because I believe that if we will all do what we can and should do, we will not need to pray for revival in our nation. It will begin because God's people, being led by God and empowered by God, will have the touch of God and God will do his work in us if we'll just let him. Ted Camp says, he said it so many times, I'll share it with you, and he says, God could do far more if we'd give him more to work with. God wants to use you tonight. I know it without a doubt. I don't know how he wants to use you. I'm not a prophet, but I do know he wants to use us, each and every one of us. And he's just waiting for us to follow him. That's it. Just follow him. When God calls you to serve him, step out by faith and obey him. Father, thank you for these questions that we've had over these last seven weeks. I'm thankful for this question tonight, and I'm thankful that Peter went and did what you said. I'm thankful that he did not wallow in self-pity. He did not wallow in past failures. He did not stay where he had been on that day. He denied you three times. He moved to the place where he accepted your call and obeyed. God, Peter's in heaven. We are here. And I know that you want, to serve, you want to use us today just like you used those men back in those days and those women. God, help us not to point to others and wonder what they're supposed to do. Help us to look to you and do everything we're supposed to do. We ask that you would use us, use this church, Lord, to be a lighthouse in this place. We believe the days are shortened until you're coming. Please help us not to be sitting, souring, and soaking. Help us to be serving. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.